0: Good morning. morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 19. It's going to be our text for this morning, Psalms 19. If you're using the Pew Bible, that can be found on page 426. Now this psalm, Psalm 19, has long been one of my favorite psalms. I just love the flow of this psalm. I think this psalm is just so beautifully written and the progression that we see from looking at creation and then going into our own lives is so powerful. I think it really just exemplifies and shows the glory of the gospel, the good news of scripture. However, if I'm just being completely transparent with you guys, if you were a fly on the wall in my office this week, you would not get that conclusion. You would not think that this was one of my favorite psalms. If I'm being completely honest, I wrestled a lot with trying to prepare this message. I believe before you go up to uh, preach a sermon... One of the biggest things that needs to happen to the preacher is that the text you're preaching on, whatever it may be, whatever the topic is, whatever scripture you're going to, that scripture needs to grab a hold of your heart before you're ready to preach that message. That, that scripture needs to preach to you before you're ready to preach. You yourself need to see the beauty of that passage before you go ahead and share that with, with the congregation. And that's really one of the biggest blessings of preaching, you know, getting to spend several hours just digging into a text and letting it grab a hold of your heart. And if you've ever preached a sermon, you can attest to that. You know, there's nothing more life-giving than the Word of God. But for whatever reason, this week was just a massive fight for me and i would read these incredible verses like verse 1 of psalm 19 and i'd see you know the the heavens declare the glory of god and the sky above proclaims his handiwork and i would just sit there just stone face almost just like okay like i i wouldn't i didn't understand the weight of that statement right there I and mean, that's an incredible incredible verse and it was not until I went to Pastor Matt's office and we just spent some time in prayer and and then I just went outside and just walked around and just looking up at the sky looking at the leaves, I was actually in the, the soccer field, so I'm probably on camera just picking up these leaves and these sticks, uh, but I promise it was for a good purpose, and, and I just walked around, and I'm looking at all this stuff, I'm looking at the squirrels run by and all these animals, and just meditating on the truths of Scripture, and just the, the truth that as beautiful as creation certainly is, it doesn't even compare to the fact that God has revealed Himself through the law and through His Son, Jesus Christ. And then, and only then, did I really feel ready to preach on this amazing psalm that was penned by David, but was really written by the Holy Spirit. So let's go ahead and take a look at Psalm 19 now. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. for this beautiful psalm. Lord as we study this section of scripture together we ask that you would open our eyes to the truths hidden in your word. We thank you and we ask this in your name. Amen. And so in this psalm we see that the Lord has revealed himself through two ways see that he's revealed himself through his creation, which is referred to as general revelation, and we also see that he has revealed himself through his word, which is referred to as special revelation. This is actually what is going to serve as our transformative truth for this morning, that God has revealed himself through general revelation in creation and through special revelation in the scriptures. So we're going to take a look at both of those ways now, as well as expound on them and hopefully get a better idea of what this truly means for us. And so the first way that we see that the Lord has revealed himself is through general revelation, namely through his creation. And this psalm begins with this meditation on the works of God. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Donald Williams comments and says that as we listen to the heavens, we hear God's glory. And the first thing we see mentioned right off the bat is the heavens. So what's he, what's he talking about here? The heavens. Well, Scripture actually speaks of three heavens. And so the first heavens in Scripture that we see is what we would consider our atmosphere. Now, this is the air that we breathe as well as the space that immediately surrounds the earth. Uh, James 5.18, speaking of Elijah the prophet, says that then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And you know, it doesn't take much searching to see that this atmosphere is beautiful. know, whether you're a believer or not, everyone stands in awe when looking at something as great as the Grand Canyon. And it honestly just blows me away that so many um, scientists and geologists specifically just claim to be atheists. You know, I had a geology professor in college who had, almost seen, who had seen almost every major wonder in the world. You know, she had gone all over the world, visiting these amazing places, seeing the Grand Canyon, Mount Everest, Yellowstone National Park, all these amazing landmarks, and many other places. And yet, she claimed to be a full-blown atheist, claimed that that was all just an accident. I mean, talk about hardening your heart to the truth. And I say intentionally, claim to be, because scripture would show that there's no such thing as a genuine atheist. There are only those who suppress what is made plain to them through God's creation. And I just can't fathom how you can look at something as incredible as the Grand Canyon or Mount Everest and just say, you know, wow, that's, that's an amazing mistake. I mean, God's creation is so Beautiful. And so if the heavens is the, or the first heavens is the atmosphere, then the second heavens is what we would refer to as the celestial heaven. You know, this would include the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the galaxies, black holes, the meteors, all of it. Deuteronomy 4.19 speaks of this second heaven, saying, "...and beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven." And this is Moses speaking to the people. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. This verse alone, I think, speaks to the majesty of God's creation. I mean, so incredible is God's creation that Moses had to warn the people of Israel not to worship the creation. Not to worship the sun or the moon or the stars, but to worship the Lord alone. During one of our lessons in Rock Solid this year, we talked about the universe uh, for a little bit. And and one of the things that we looked at were some of the largest stars that we have in the known universe. And I say known because I'm sure there's bigger ones, but this is just what we have discovered so far. And I'm not going to talk about all of them, but I do want to mention two very quickly. And so this first one that we talked about quickly became specifically the girls in the youth group. It became their favorite star because of its name. And that name is Betelgeuse. Very obvious why. And Betelgeuse has a diameter of about 600 million miles. And it's about 700 times the size of the sun. And the second star I will mention I think has a much better name. This star is called Canis Majoris. And it's twice as big as Betelgeuse, with a diameter of 1.2 billion miles in length. And so when the psalmist says that the heavens declare the glory of God, this is what he's referring to. We are just a speck on the map. And, you know, we could go on and on about the second heavens. We could talk about all these amazing stars, these amazing planets. But now we're going to move to the third heavens. And the third heavens, as described in Scripture, is the place where God dwells. Now, to be clear, I think the Bible would show very, very clearly that God is not limited to any one geographical location. Solomon in 1 Kings 8 says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. However, Scripture also teaches that there is a place where God does reside. Hebrews 8.1 says, We do have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And again, in Acts 7, right before Stephen is killed, verse 55 tells us, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And When was the last time that you thought about the fact that Jesus is in heaven right now at the right hand of the majesty on high? I mean, if we were to go outside and, and the skies were to peel back and the heavens were to open and we could see into the third heavens, I mean, this is what we would see. And we would see God the Father on the throne. And we would see God the Son at his right hand, victorious over death. We would see the, the, the holes in his wrists. And we would see the fallen saints there worshiping him. I mean, do we actually believe this, that this is what we would see? And when we're feeling discouraged, when we're going through trials, when we're unsure of what our future holds, we need to remember that Christ has already conquered death. He has already defeated the enemy. He is on the throne right now. He is victorious. And if we are in Christ, then we are victorious as well. So we need to meditate on these truths daily. The heavens declare the glory of God. And this divine glory is the sum total of God's holy character and his attributes, which he has made known to man. And we also see that the sky above proclaims his handiwork. As we've talked about so far, we have seen that the creation itself testifies to the existence of a divine designer, to God himself. And this truth about God is made known through the skillful works of his hands. The psalmist continues day to day, pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. This communication by God is unceasing. It is continuous. Charles Spurgeon comments, Though all preachers on earth should grow silent and every human mouth cease from publishing the glory of God, the heavens above will never cease to declare and proclaim His majesty and His glory. And this unending communication is what testifies to the world a general revelation of God's character. In specific, his eternal power, his goodness, his kindness, and his faithfulness. Romans one twenty, speaking on this point, says about God and his creation. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Steve Lawson comments and says that this is a soundless sermon continually communicated in the skies. And verses 3 and 4 really serve to expound on these truths. It says, There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So even though creation may not speak Audibly, its voice nevertheless reaches all nations, and it is accessible wherever human speech and language is spoken. No person is left without God's general revelation through creation. And verse four says that their words, namely creation, reaches to the end of the world. And as I read that verse, I'm immediately reminded of Jesus' command to the apostles in Acts 1.8, when he says that you will be my witnesses in all Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And as you read through the book of Acts, this is exactly what we see. Now, due to persecution, the gospel continues to spread until Paul, who is a chosen vessel of the Lord's, brings it to the ends of the earth, namely to the Gentile nations, And this same Paul, in his letter to the Romans, quotes Psalm 19, verse 4. However, he uses it not as a reference to God's general revelation of creation, but as God's special revelation to emphasize that the Jews have heard the good news because the gospel has gone even to the ends of the world. It has reached the Gentiles. It has gone beyond the Jewish nations and has gone to the the ends of the earth, and it continues to spread today. And as we look at the general revelation that God has given to us, in the same line of thought, we see that the entire globe is covered with God's handiwork. No place or person is without some knowledge of God. Creation has made known the creator, and it has made known the fall. Everyone knows that there is something messed up with this world. That's why one of the biggest questions asked by skeptics is along the lines of, how can a good God allow bad things to happen? Everyone knows inwardly that there's something broken. We all have a desire for something greater. And a desire for something that no matter what we try to satisfy it with, if it is things on this earth, it will always leave us feeling empty. And C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, says that if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. So creation reveals that there is something greater than us and that there is someone greater than us. And because of this, the door is wide open for evangelism. And the psalmist now turns to the marvel of the sun, Describing it in poetic terms as a bridegroom and as a strong man, saying, "At the end of verse four and into verse five, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. And other translations refer to this tent as a tabernacle, and it represents the place where the sun goes when it sets. And then when the day begins, the sun becomes like a bridegroom dressed up for his bride as he leaves his wedding chamber. And he is glowing with light and radiance. He describes the sun as a strong man who runs his course with joy. And this picture here is one of an athlete entering a race with joy. And verse 6 now completes this thought. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. The heavens are filled with the sun. Rising in the east, it travels every day, humanly speaking, to settle in the west. And God communicates to us through the sun, which crosses the heavens, so that all of the earth receives its magnificence and the glory of the Creator. And David concludes his thought, there is nothing hidden from its heat. And Lewis, C.S. Lewis, actually believed that this Line right here is the key line of Psalm 19 because it marks the transition from the works of God to the word of God, and it links them both together. As the sun rules the day, so God's law rules us. And we see through this psalm that both the sun and the law reveal the light of God. Nothing is hidden from the sun, and nothing is hidden before the God who made the sun. And so the opening of Psalm 19 then reveals the God who communicates his glory to us through his creation. And this communication is a witness to his desire to always be known and to always be worshipped by us. And we see that he is also the universal God, claiming all people for himself. However, we run into a major problem because sin has darkened our perception of who God is. And as a result, we have errors We have secret sins, and we have presumptuous, we have premeditated sins that must be dealt with. And so we need more than just the witness of creation. As amazing and as beautiful as creation is, knowledge of a creator is not enough to be rescued from our sins. We need the word of God so that we are able to understand the works of God. General revelation holds us accountable because it reveals a creator. However, it also condemns us because in our sin, in our hardness of heart, we have sinned against the creator. That's the problem. This is the problem, that we have sinned against a good and a just God, and without a savior, we stand condemned. But praise the Lord that the psalm does not end right there, because as Donald Williams puts it, in the darkness, God speaks. So creation is only one of the ways that God has revealed himself. And verse 7 introduces us to volume 2 of God's revelation, the law of the Lord. So this psalm now turns from general revelation that is revealed in creation to special revelation that is given through God's word. So let's go ahead and take a look at verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Moreover by them is your servant warned in keeping them there is great reward. And so in these few verses we see the value and we see the use of God's word. And in this section God's word is described as law, testimony, precepts, commandment, the fear of the Lord, and as rules. And its value is described as perfect, as sure, right, pure, clean true, and righteous. Its purpose is given as reviving the soul, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes, enduring forever, and righteous altogether. So earlier in the service, our scripture reading, we looked at the beginning of Psalm 119. And I really see Psalm 119 as a massive expansion of Psalm 19, uh, specifically verses 7 through 9. Psalm 119 is all about how precious the word of God is. And here in Psalm 19, David is expressing in one long run-on sentence his joy for the word of God, his joy for the law of the Lord. And because God's law is all of these things to the psalmist and to the believer, because it is perfect and sure and right, it revives the soul, it makes wise the simple, causes the heart to rejoice, all these things, David can confidently say that it is to be desired more than gold, even much fine gold. And describes God's word as sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. So through God's word, we are warned, and as we obey the word of God, we are rewarded. And here's where we come to see the connection, that just as the sun is comprehensive for our world, the word is comprehensive for our lives. Before the word of God, there is nothing hidden from its heat. So notice what the psalmist says about the commandments. It says that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. This is why the law cannot save us. The law is perfect, but we are not. We cannot measure up to it. However, that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with the law. There's something wrong with us. Paul, speaking on the law, says in Romans 7, "...so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good, then, bring death to me? By no means." It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So there's nothing wrong with the law, but it is an administration of death and condemnation to us because there is something radically wrong with us. The law was given to show us that we are sinners before a holy God. However, one of the main functions of the law is to convert us, because the law reveals God's holiness, and it reveals our sinfulness. And as Martin Luther puts it, "...the law drives us to despair so that we may be driven to Christ." This is why Paul says in Romans ten, four, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Next, the psalmist writes, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The testimony of the Lord is sure, it is complete, it is faithful, and it is unchanging. That's huge. Don't count on God changing to the new morality. God's not interested in the new views of psychology. He's not watching to change what happens when there are new laws and decisions that are passed that are being handed down by some judges. And there are far too many people out there who would claim to be scholars who will say that this verse and who will say that this verse, whatever it may be, uh, in Scripture doesn't actually mean what we've always thought it to mean. You got. 24-year-olds on TikTok saying that they've studied this, this text, this scripture, and, and this isn't what we've always believed it to mean. And I would just warn you to be very cautious of that. If you hear of something that has never been discovered, we should be very weary of that. And I would just warn you that if you are looking to justify a sin in your life that scripture makes very clear is a sin, I assure you that Satan has a lie for you. God is going to punish sin. He makes clear in His word that that is what He is going to do. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Judgment is coming. God's commandments reveal this. And the second half of this verse says, making wise the simple. Now, the simple are described in Scripture as those who are open minded or open to instruction. And the instruction of wise fathers teaching their sons is the meaning that's carried in this word. This theme is actually what serves as the purpose of Proverbs. Proverbs 1 4 says that it is to give prudence to the simple and to the young man knowledge and discretion. So from here, the psalmist says that the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The precepts here refers to the commandments of the Lord. And because they are right, because they are just, and because they are righteous, the heart rejoices. it's through the commandments of the Lord that we can know how to please the Lord. The commandments of the Lord reveal to us the character of God, and they show us how we can please Him. That's why the saints in the Old Testament rejoiced over the law of the Lord, because it revealed to them the God they worship. And as we just mentioned, because they are true, and they are righteous— And so their heart rejoiced over them. And all throughout scripture, we see that our knowledge of the Lord is to be used for our worship of the Lord. In other words, our theology, our knowledge of God, should lead to doxology, a praise for him. And a parallel thought then follows. He says that the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. This commandment is pure because it has been given by a holy God, by the holy God. It brings enlightenment to our eyes because it has been sanctified by the Lord himself. And the psalmist reflects that the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And a lot of people will say that this is a reference to a reverence for the Lord, like a, a reverential trust. And while it does mean that, I think it means more than that, it means fear. We do well to fear God. Now, there's not enough fear of the Lord, I think, in America specifically. You know, too many people who claim to bear the name of Christ, but who don't actually fear God. You know, they would have what, you, what they would describe as a casual friendship with God. You know, Jesus is just seen as their buddy who is cool with their sinning, and all he wants for you is to just love everyone and everything and just try your best in life, like some sort of just like celestial hippie. But that is not the Jesus of the Scriptures. That is not the God of the Scriptures. And we need to be reminded of who Jesus is and who we are. And we need to be reminded of the God that we worship. The God that when he appeared to Isaiah in a vision, all Isaiah could say is, Woe is me, for I am undone. And that wording there, of I am undone, is literally translated, Isaiah just wished he would drop dead right there, because he was in the presence of a holy God. We need to be reminded of the Jesus who said in John three eighteen and 19, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. We need to remember the Jesus who promises to return and when he does, promises that every tongue will confess, every knee will bow that Jesus is Lord. This is not some touchy-feely God that we worship. This is a holy and a just God who hates sin and who will judge those who do not turn from their sins. Now, R.C. Sproul said that the biggest problem that the human race has is this. God is holy. He is righteous. He is just. And we are not. We need to get out of this idea that it's it's just completely contrary to Scripture that says that you are inherently a good person. Because this is not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that due to the curse of sin, we are born into sin. Psalm 51, David says, In sin did my mother conceive me. In Romans 3, Paul quotes the psalmist and talks about all the different members of our body that are sinful, that our feet are quick, swift to shed blood, and our mouths are full of curses and bitterness. There's venom in our lips. In sin did my mother conceive me. We are born into sin. As most of you know, my wife and I are expecting our first baby in is it October. No, I'm just. <laughs> it's October. <laughs> and so we're expecting our first child. And I will tell you right now as cute as I anticipate that our baby will be, as adorable as that baby's going to be, as excited as we are to hold her, that baby is going to be a selfish little sinner. I can promise you that. I can promise you. I am not going to have to sit her down when she's two years old and explain to her how to disobey her father. I'm not going to have to teach her how to take things that don't belong to her or how to lie to her parents. I'm not going to have to tell her, you know, there's the cookie jar we're putting over there, but if you just grab a chair and you just climb up there a little bit, you can get to it when, when we're not looking. I'm not going to have to teach any of these things to her. She's going to learn these things all on her own. And chances are she's going to become good at a few of these things as well. And as Vodi Bauckham would say, our adorable little baby will be a viper in a diaper. (laughs) So, we are all born into sin, and it is only through Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave that we can be made right with the Lord. And this fear of the Lord, then, recognizing that God is holy and that apart from his grace and apart from his mercy, we stand condemned, but because of Christ, we can have life. This fear of the Lord is clean. And not only is it clean, but it endures forever. Matthew twenty four thirty five. Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So from here, David notes that the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Is through the law of God and the revelation of God that God establishes his justice and therefore his judgment. And here is where God reveals what is true and right. And we are accountable to that revelation on the day of judgment. But the good news is that God's truth and his righteousness have been incarnated for us in Jesus who says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And as our perfect mediator, he gives us his truth and his righteousness when we, by grace and by faith, abandon our unrighteousness and flee to him. And having now dealt with the importance of God's revelation in verses 7 through 9, David now comes to his conclusion in verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. The law is the psalmist's treasure, and it ought to be the believer's treasure as well. Jesus warns us in Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And to hear God's word and to obey it is to build our house upon the rock that is Christ. And to study God's word is to labor with a precious metal that will never fade. However, God's word is not only our treasure... It is our delight as well, as the psalmist describes it as sweeter than honey. Donald Williams again is helpful, saying that the word is a treasure to be claimed and a taste to be enjoyed. Our real and lasting treat is the word of the Lord. After talking about the value of the law, David turns to the use of the law, saying that moreover by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. One thing that's important to note is that here, David identifies himself as the servant of his master. His delight is to do his master's will. And throughout scripture, whenever God warns us through his word, he instructs us as his servants. We see that the apostle Paul certainly saw the value of God's word. And in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul writing to Timothy reminds us that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And it's through the word that your servant is warned. We also see that in keeping the law, there is great reward. And this reward that we see here is threefold is first the reward of doing the will of the Father. Second, it is the reward of living a fulfilled life. In John 10.10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And third, it's the assurance of being ready to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Second Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And David concludes this psalm with a final prayer that we can learn a lot from. So let's look at, take a look at these last few verses, verses 12 through 14. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. See that because of the darkness of sin and the deceit of the enemy, the word of God is neither our natural instruction nor our natural delight. This is why the word must come in the power of God's spirit to bring a conviction of sin as well as a cleansing from sin. After meditating on God's general revelation and his special revelation, the psalmist now turns to humanity's fallen state. David asks who can understand his, who can understand man's errors. And the answer is that apart from God's revelation, no one. However, we can praise the Lord for his word, which does reveal our true condition. In fact, John Calvin likened the word of God to a mirror that reveals the true crisis that we are in, and our motives are exposed as a result. Verse 12 continues, Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Scripture acts as a lamp that reveals hidden faults within us that must be confessed while asking the Lord for forgiveness. And praise the Lord because after God opens us up, he cleans us up. First John 1 John 1.9 says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a joy it is to be forgiven. The psalmist also prays for protection. I would add that the psalmist pleads for protection. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. It's not enough to be cleansed and protected. We need the Spirit's power to live a renewed life. And so the psalmist continues, "...let them not have dominion over me. It's only in the power of the Holy Spirit that this prayer is answered. When the Lord is the one who has dominion in our lives, when He is the one that we worship as our Lord, then and only then will we not be controlled by our own passions." You can see the progression here from the psalmist. After we are convicted of our sin, after we are cleansed and protected from our sin, and after the Holy Spirit has taken control of our lives, then we can confidently say to the Lord, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. That word blameless means to be whole. It means to be complete. And this is now our position in Christ and only because of Christ. Romans 8.1 reminds us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the final fulfillment of this promise will be when we are face to face with the Lord. And now David ends this psalm with one of the great short prayers in Scripture. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. David concludes this psalm by expressing to God, May the words of my mouth, may the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Only the word of God applied by the Spirit of God could make David's mouth and heart pleasing before God's all-knowing sight. And this God was David's Lord, was David's rock, and he was David's Redeemer. The question is, is he yours? Such a great God demands obedience and personal holiness from all worshipers. And as I was finishing my sermon, I just thought about how fitting it was to preach on Psalm 19 today, end with this final prayer from David, and then go into communion, you know, to enter into a time of confession of our sins to the Lord and partake of the Lord's supper together. And as we enter into this time, I pray that you would reflect on this psalm, reflect on this final prayer from David and ask yourself if this is a prayer that you desire in your own life. Do you long for holiness? Do you long for the words of your mouth as well as the meditation of your heart to be acceptable to the Lord? I think the second part of that verse is the kicker. Now, it's one thing for our words to be acceptable, but our thoughts now, that's what reveals our true desires. If you are a believer in Christ, this should be your desire. If you're here and you do not know Christ, maybe you're here you're even skeptical of God in the first place, I have some very good news for you. As we have seen throughout this psalm, God does exist. And he has revealed himself to mankind in ways that are unmistakable and ways that are undeniable. Natural revelation in the world has revealed the fact of God's existence and his attributes. But even more than that, special revelation through his word has made known the way to know him through God's plan of salvation. And what's important is that every person should respond to this message appropriately. And the response as revealed in Scripture is for a person to repent of his or her sin and to turn to the Lord through believing in His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the message of Scripture. That is the message of the Gospel. That is the message that gave the psalmist hope and an unwavering confidence in the Lord. And I pray that this confidence would be yours today. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you for the ways that you have revealed yourself to us. Not only through your creation, but through your word. And Lord, we praise you that even though you did not have to reveal yourself, Lord, you certainly were not required to reveal yourself. In your love, you chose to reveal yourself. Lord, as we enter into this time of communion, may our prayer be the prayer of David. Lord, we pray that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. O Lord, forgive us when we turn to our own passions and desires, and help us to walk by your Spirit in newness of life. We ask this in your name. Amen.